Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. I trust that Pastor Elliot last week took care of you. And, and motivated your prayer life from that great sermon in Colossians 4.2. Because of his generosity and sacrifice in coming here to preach to you, it allowed me to go and preach at a conference that had been rescheduled from the year before in Tennessee. was able to preach there five times and uh, represent you and God's truth. And I'm just back and happy to report that all went well. And I say that because sometimes I go and speak places and it doesn't go well. Like the time I was invited to come speak at this Christian executives, highfalutin, frou-frou conference that frankly was just intimidating when I heard about what it was, but they invited me to come and preach the Bible. So they, yeah, I'm, I can do that. And it was at the Ritz-Carlton of all places and don't do many speaking engagements at the Ritz-Carlton, but I said, okay. And I went and had to find my tie in a drawer somewhere. And, and I, so I got my suit on, I was ready to go. I pull up and of course I'm pretty frugal. I, I want to do self-parking and whenever I can, but there's no self-parking. There's the Ritz Carlton. So they kind of wheeled me into the line for the valet and the valet. They're so good. They opened my door and, you know, felt like I was getting carjacked at the moment. It's just like, a, they're really, you know, like get out, you know, get welcome to the Ritz Carlton. So, you know, I, I kind of felt rushed and shoot out of my own car, but quickly grabbed my Bible and my uh, preaching uh, notebook. And I, I was like, yeah, let, let's go, and straighten the knot on my tie, walk through this grand entrance of the Ritz-Carlton, and found out where this thing was, and made my way down. I had just about the right time to hobnob a little bit, and meet these people, and get situated, and get a microphone on, and they took me up to the front row, where all the participants on the uh, platform were going to be, kind of getting up and down from the platform, and so I, I sat there, the, the worship song started, and they were going to do like a service, you know, and they couple songs in, and my handler leans over to me and goes, okay, you're going to be up uh, right after uh, this next song. So, you know, I tried the whole time I was sitting there in the front, can you kind of feel like everyone's looking at it, who's this guy that's going to speak to us, and I tried not to kind of peek at my notes in my little note folder there because I didn't want to act like I wasn't prepared, you know, like I needed to bone up on things real quick before I went up there, so I, I didn't. But when he said, you're up after this next song, I thought... I got to at least peek at the wording of the introduction. I got to get ready to go with this message. So uh, I opened my folder up, and there it was nothing. <laughs> Empty. Uh, you know, preachers have nightmares. <laughs> and I'll tell you, in all the years, I, I don't think I've ever had a situation where the nightmare was coming true, because that's a recurring nightmare. I mean, usually I'm like at a service, it's really cool, I'm admiring everything, I'm worshiping, it's all great, and then someone says, okay, you're on, and I'm like, I didn't even know I was speaking, and, and you wake up in a cold sweat. Because there's nothing worse, really, than, than people kind of putting the microphone on you, putting you up on the platform, saying, okay, now's the time for you to say something important, and, and feeling ill-prepared. Well, that's a terrible, horrible feeling. You better do your prep, you better be prepared, you better have everything you need uh, before you stand up and try and say something for God. We've been studying the book of Acts, we've gotten to Acts chapter 10, this is our fourth week in Acts chapter 10, and we've reached the zenith of this discussion, and the reason it took so long to get here 
among other reasons, is because um, there was a lot of prep that had to take place. We need to at least identify this morning with Peter, who had a lot of preparation he had to have. And of course, we've seen the beginning of Acts chapter 10, the preparation that Cornelius had to have. But now it's go time. I mean, we're really hitting the, the, the meat of this passage. And we look starting in verse number 30 at Peter. He's going to share the gospel. It really doesn't start till verse 36 or so when he's getting into it. But we, we have this, this gospel encounter. And part of the reason, as I explained last time we were studying this together, that this took so long and there's so much given to this is because this was a monumental evangelistic encounter, right? Here's a Roman soldier at Caesarea Maritime on the Mediterranean coast, and he's going to have the apostle of the megachurch in Jerusalem going to come to his place. And, you know, you can picture him there sitting in his front room and, you know, his Roman helmets on the on, on the shelf, and his spear is up against the, behind the door, and it's just like, here is the Jewish preacher, the apostle, the representative of, of Christ, and we're about to have a gospel conversation. This is monumental, talking about, you know, getting to that layer of, of the Gentiles and opening up the ends of the earth that we started with in Acts 1-8. That, that's a big, big deal, and I, I know as I'm trying to get us to at least identify this morning with Peter that the next time you have a conversation with a non-Christian, it may not be the monumental, epic, like you're, you're opening up Gentile inclusion into the body of Christ, but uh, I can tell you it feels that way. This passage is not about Christian A bumping into non-Christian B on the subway and they talk about Jesus, right? That's not how this works. This is a big deal. And while we're not living that out, we certainly feel the sweaty palms and the weak knees and the shallow breathing of, man, this is, this is go time now. All that stuff I learn about on the weekend, all the stuff I study in my Bible, you know, everything I, I, I'm about as a Christian, time for me to talk about these important, eternally significant things. You're going to feel like that. And, and here's the deal. I, I want to this morning make sure you are more prepared when you leave today than you were when you came in, because it's a horrible thing for you to have now a platform, and it may be across the table at a, at a coffee shop. It may be on the bleachers of your kid's soccer game. But now the conversation has turned. You are Christian A, you got non-Christian B, and you know you got this open door to talk about the most important things in all of eternity. And it's go time. You better be ready. So I want to look at this text, and it's a lengthy text, verses 30 through 48 of Acts chapter 10. If you haven't turned there yet, please get there to that text. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one under the seat there in front of you, or just look, look it up on your phone and go to esv.org if you want to follow along in the translation that I'm going to be reading from. And of course, all you are well past that. That was just, that was killing time so you could get there. Did you get there? Acts chapter 10, verse 30. Now remember what we've got. We've got now Peter under the roof of, of Cornelius, the team. He's come with a posse and Cornelius has got his whole team gathered there. And uh, we, pick up, we pick up the narrative here, verse 30. Ready? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying at my house at the ninth hour, it's mid-afternoon, three o'clock. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And you know, we've already studied this in the first eight verses. This is an angelic being. This is a supernatural appearance of a messenger of God taking on some kind of physical manifestation. And said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms, your giving, your generous giving to the, to the poor and the needy have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging at the house of Simon, a different Simon, a tanner by the sea. So about 30 miles south on the Mediterranean coast. So I sent for you at once. This is now Cornelius talking to Peter. 
and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth, and he said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Verse 36, as for the word that he sent to Israel, let's just put a little ellipse there, dot, dot, dot. He's going to then get into his gospel presentation. Now, if you read this in your ESV, you saw a, a, a paragraph division and even a heading by your, your translators and editors there uh, who, are, who are putting this together and laying it out in your Bibles, that the end of verse 33, we've got Cornelius done talking, and then Peter picks it up in verse 34. And that'd be a good place to kind of section this off, and Pastor Mike's probably going to get his first point from that first section. But I've included verses 34 and 35, for one, because we spent a whole hour dealing with the first eight verses of Acts 10, which this is just a recapitulation, retelling of that story in the first four verses. But what I want to show is we get in the sandals of Peter, making sure we're ready for our next monumental discussion with a non-Christian about Christ. I want to be like Peter, who recognizes right out of the gate, listen, I get it now. I should be sharing the gospel with you. I understand God shows no partiality. And of course, we have all the background theologically and ethnically about Jews and Gentiles. We've been through all of that. But he says, I get it. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is in those two verses, 34 and 35. It's a response of Peter to the preparation that Cornelius had just retold, which now Peter's going, I get it. You're the one. Now, Peter had been prepared, Cornelius had been prepared, and he goes, I get that you are the one I should be talking this message to. And that is just a simple observation, and I don't want to take long on it this morning, but it's important for us, if we are going to be fully prepared, when it's go time for us to have a conversation about Christ with a non-Christian, we have to, taking notes, put it down this way, number one, we have to detect God's pre-conversion work. Now, if you've been with us in this study, that rings a bunch of bells and alarms go off. That's exactly what we studied for eight verses at the beginning of this chapter. We talked about God's grace in drawing people to the place of being ready to hear the gospel. We dealt with that real difficult doctrinal concern about the fact that Christians are alive in Christ and non-Christians are dead to God, Ephesians chapter 2, and that Romans 3 says there's no one that seeks after God, and yet here is someone that seems to be seeking after God. How does that work? And we talked about in that sermon, and I don't want to re-preach that whole sermon, but that God is doing things pre-conversion in his grace. People don't deserve it. It's not like he's picking the smart people or the spiritually sensitive people. He is creating the spiritual sensitivity and the insight to the gospel, and he's drawing them to a place of then being ready to hear it. Jesus talked a lot about, to him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the question is, well, some people don't have ears to hear. But the point is, you need to hear what I'm about to say. But I know what has happened before this is God's done work to get your ears prepped to hear it. Right? If they're going to see the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, their eyes need to be unblinded. We need to get that grace of God preparing the non-Christian to hear it. And I say all this about you needing to detect that in, at some level, because if I say to you, let's go be evangelical like we're supposed to be, everyone in South County, get out there and talk to people about Christ. And we've been saying that in different ways throughout this 10-chapter this study. But you don't just go out and talk to everyone all the time in every single conversation about Christ. You know that to be evangelical, there are certain conversations that, that even any mention of spiritual things, there's like pushback, pushback, pushback. There's people that you sense, even in the sorting out of conversations in your own mind, 
that they're the kinds of people that are like, we see Paul respond, we see the disciples respond in the Gospels. They don't want to hear this. If you count yourself unworthy of eternal life, we're going to go to the Gentiles, as Paul says later in this book. Or, you know, when Jesus says, kick the dust off from your feet. You know that there's some open doors for discussion, and then there's some closed doors. And I'm not saying there can't be cold contact evangelism, and there's a place for that. But even in cold contact evangelism, there's some people when they know you want to talk about spiritual things or eternal things or Christ or Christianity or religion or sin or heaven and hell, they don't want to talk about it. But then there's people that are being prepped. And all I'm saying is think through that series. And if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to our first sermon in this chapter. In this first sermon in this chapter, we talked about God's work of preparing Cornelius to hear the message. And that's why you can't misread what's going on in verse 35. If you want to get the whole sentence, verses 34 and 35. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And if you say, well, there you go. It doesn't matter if the Buddhist, you know, is a Christian or not, or the Muslim is a Christian. It's just as long as they're kind of, you know, doing the right things, they're morally good, and they kind of fear God, the greater power. I don't know. You can go through AA and still come out with this idea of like, the God, there's a God. See, they don't need Christianity. Well, that would be to divorce the entire verse from the context. The point is, he has that pre-conversion grace that God's favor in giving him this, this mind and this heart and these ears and these eyes, so to speak, to comprehend the gospel. And that's why this whole thing was happening. He needs the gospel. That's the point. Jesus is needing to be his king, his Lord, his savior, his redeemer. And that's why Peter and the posse is there. They're there to share the message. And all I'm saying is those indicators we looked at in Cornelius' life that are just briefly summarized here, that he fears God and he does what is right, these are the indicators that God is at work. Right? These are the indicators that God is getting this person ready. Let's look at it from just one more layer that we didn't talk about in the first eight verses. The Spirit of God sent out into the world, the third person of the Godhead, In the upper room discourse, Jesus said, if I go away, I'm going to send this parakletos, this helper, this one that's going to come alongside. Not only going to help you, as we learned in Acts chapter 1, Spirit's going to come on you, you're going to be my witnesses, but he's going to help them on the receiving side. And he's going to do it this way. He's going to convict the world, the outsiders now, of sin and righteousness and judgment. Remember that passage? That is a reminder that what God is doing out there in the conversations that will open up into conversations that are even receptive, allowable, tolerant of me talking about Christ and Christianity, God is already working in their hearts, giving them an increasing sense of conviction regarding sin, the fact that this world is messed up, that the God of this world has been judged, righteousness, that I don't measure up. That's what sin is. We fall short of the glory of God. Jesus, he says, I'm leaving, and the Spirit's going to take the role that I've had and that everyone's looking at me, saying that I am the standard of good and perfection. And, and, and then judgment, because this thing's not going to end well, and you need to get right with your Creator. The Spirit of God is creating that. When I talk about Cornelius in the first eight verses, fearing God, what, is that all? what does that do? Well, that changes your behavior. In summary, that makes you the kind of person that says, well, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I shouldn't steal that. Maybe I shouldn't cheat in that way. Maybe I shouldn't do that kind of thing and compromise. The fear of God is that sense that God is in charge, that God's eyes are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good, that I ought to be thoughtful about the fact that my behavior matters. So all of these things are preparatory. And you know there are people in your life right now, and I want you to think about it. Right? You're not going to win the first Gentile to Christ, but you have someone 
You probably have a few people that if you were to rank them in your mind, I do think God is working in that pre-conversion grace in this life and in that life. They seem to be like more than just their conscience. They seem to have a greater conviction of their sin. Now, can you have that pre-conversion work and, and not be saved? Well, that's, that was the whole point of that, of that sermon. Your first inklings of being drawn to God does not mean you're saved. Right? The first inkling of you having conviction of sin that's beyond your conscience doesn't mean you're a Christian. Right? The whole sense of you have a receptivity and are coming to church and hearing the Bible, it's like, I'm making sense, and it, it's starting to gel in my mind. It doesn't mean you're saved. But those are the pre-conversion works of God in your life. And what we're doing now in Peter's sandals is thinking, who is it in my life that I sense that's happening? You start the conversations. You get into the con- conversation about Christianity and Christ. You start to see that. Sometimes it's intuitive because the doors actually start to open. It's like, hey, I didn't even, we just had a conversation about Christianity because God has been working on them. But think about that. I mean, unless the conversation gets to Christianity, you're not going to know just by throwing the topic out. Sometimes you need to think, well, I've heard about their dealing with this situation in their life or their failed marriage or the problem they're having over here with something going on or their desire to do good or talking about doing things with integrity even though no one sees them. Maybe God is at work in this person's life. And maybe their ears are being opened to hear the message that I am there to bring to them. Love to spend more on that, but we've talked a lot about it in the past. But start looking for that. Say, God, help me to see that. Where is, as we say in our family, where's the low-hanging fruit in these relationships where I feel like these people are ready? The fields are white for harvest here in this relationship, in this life, in this family. Number two, look at verse 36. Now the message starts, right? Here he is in verse 36 actually starting the discussion about the gospel. As for the word, now look back up at what he says in verse 33. He says, now therefore we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. We want to hear the message, the word, the thing that you've got to say. So now he's going to start saying it in in verse 36. And and we're just going to walk through this. Do you have a worksheet? Do you see how scary that worksheet is with all those sub points? Holy smokes, man. I got to get to lunch at some point, Pastor Mike. We're going to get through it, I hope. Let's try. Verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, the reason I, as a Jewish apostle, am here in the Roman centurion's home in Caesarea, the gospels to the Jew first and also the Greek. So we got the message. Came based on the covenant to the Old Testament, on the Abrahamic covenant, just as the foundational sense that Israel was going to be chosen to bring this blessing to the nations preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He's Lord of all. Let's just start, first of all, with that phrase, preaching good news. The message comes preaching good news. The whole point of this is you being prepared to share the message of the good news. Euangelion. Euangelion, we've talked about this many times. Ooh, this, this, this word good, angelion, get the word angel from it, transliterated into English. The, the messenger, we think of angels, but the, the angelos or the, the, the word that the message itself. We have a good message. We call it in, in uh, kind of a transliteration, the evangelical or the evangelical message. It's the message of good news. In old English, the gospel. The gospel, the good news, the, the message, angelion, the evangelistic thing that we say is a good message. And it's God's message, and he gave it first to Israel. And if, let's say, Cornelius comes to faith and then recognizes he's called to be ambassador, well, he takes that message that came to Israel, and he's now going to take it with him and be an ambassador of that message. Just like we, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the globe, doing the same thing, we have to know what it is. We have to be ready with it to share it. So I put it this way. Let's give a heading to all these seven subpoints here. Number two, be ready with God's gospel message, the good news message. 
So what is the good news message? That is what we want to spend time with. Now, we've got seven things real quick we just want to see. Remember a couple things. Number one, this is a synopsis, a summary of what was said. If you read this and time yourself reading it out loud, I guarantee you that Peter spent more time than whatever it takes for you to read it. So these are the high points. These are the summarized statements. Of course, they're not just Luke's you know, decisions on it. God's spirit is driving Luke to record these statements. And so we recognize what we have here needs to be fleshed out in our thinking. And to me, that's the whole point of this message anyway. We look at these topics. You read things, if you glance through it, like about the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. I get all that, right? God, Christ is good. Listen, it's like you saying to me, tell me about your kids, you know, I really want to know. And I say, yeah, I got three kids. Yeah, Matt and John and Stephanie. And then I'm silent. And my wife said, did you tell them about our kids? Well, yeah, I told them, Matt, John, and Stephanie. That, yeah, I guess that is telling, but it doesn't tell me anything about your kids. If I say to you, go out there and share the gospel, and you just dump some lines on them. You know, oh, yeah, it was a sin problem. God loves you. Christ, perfect, died, rose, repent, faith. Do, do that. That's not going to work. That is not going to work. You're going to have to explain these things. As I said years ago to people that took it more literally than I wanted them to, you should be able to wake me up at 2 in the morning and say, what does it mean that Christ died on the cross? Why did Christ have to be resurrected? What's the problem of sin all about? The the 2 a.m. gospel test is you ought to be able to explain what these things mean. Flesh these out. So let's take the high points here in this and let's say, okay, i got to understand this. First thing. Here it is. It is a message of good news of what? What's the word? Middle of verse 36. The word that was sent to Israel preaching good news of peace. Now, I know it's going to be about Christ because it's through Christ. He's Lord of all. But let's just take that phrase of peace. Okay. Now, if I don't understand that in theological context, I might think, yeah, I got some bad relationship with people. I, I do need some peace. And you might even be tempted to think that because the context is about the first Gentile convert and it's about Jews and and Gentiles getting along because, you know, it even says Jesus is Lord of all and the all must mean Gentiles and Jews and Scythians and barbarians and free and slave. That's what this is. Well, that is true. There is a sense of a unification and the barrier being broken down and the context certainly speaks to that aspect of it. But the gospel or the good news of peace is not about you kind of getting along in your family better or with your coworkers better. The good news of the gospel is solving a problem that you and I have at being alienated from God. Isaiah 59, 2. It's about your sins and my sins making a separation between us and God. It's about Adam being cast out of the garden in Genesis. It's about the problem of me being at hostility with God, being at enmity with God. That Christ dying for us while we were still enemies of God. That's the problem. And the solution in Christ is going to be a message of reconciliation. Bringing these hostile parties together. Because if you're just talking about relational peace, Jesus made it clear. Hey, I didn't come to the world to bring peace. I can't bring a sword. I'm going to set a man against the members of his own family. Talk about close relationships. My message of the gospel is going to split people up. Right? Oh, it's going to bring people together in the church. Whether it's a centurion from Caesarea or a preacher from Jerusalem. It doesn't matter their ethnic background, their socioeconomic strata. They're all going to be one in Christ. And the whole next series, starting in chapter 11, is going to be all about that. But the real issue is a message of salvation of sinners. It's a message about peace with God. If you're taking notes, put that next to verse 36 there. We're giving a message about peace with God. And if that sounds like a yawner to you, you've been in our church too long, you don't realize that's not what people are saying about the gospel out there. They're saying, hey, you got some problems? Your life is hard? 
get some Jesus. Get Jesus. Be a Christian. Right? You want a wonderful life? You want peace with your relationship? You want inner peace? Hey, you don't have purpose? Jesus has purpose for you. He'll give you purpose. All these things we do in the present, presenting of the gospel in our culture, in our day, it's not that it's new to our culture, but it's certainly rampant in our culture. It's that we see Christ kind of solving all these temporary problems for us. And the caricature of that is the prosperity gospel. I gotta, I gotta, gotta move from my apartment to a house. I got, I got a house to a bigger house. I need a car to a greater car. God, Christ's gonna solve all these problems. The real problem Christ came to solve, whether you're rich or poor and never own a car, is that you are at enmity with God because of your status as a sinner and your confirmation of that status by your acts of sin make it only worse. You and God are at odds with each other and you need to be reconciled to God. That's the message of peace can bring peace on earth. I read that on a, on a Christmas card once. I think that's in the Bible, Luke 2, right? Well, you need to read it in your Bible very carefully. This is about peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. That's a very specific discussion of what that means. Preached on that at length and why there's a King James difference and all the rest. You can get those sermons. But the idea is this is not about, you know, everyone's copacetic. It, it, I know it was the soundtrack for the Coke commercial back in the 80s or whatever. We're singing about, you know, peace on earth, goodwill to men, and, and it's supposed to make us all kind of get along. The gospel's not going to make us get along. The gospel's really going to divide us because of that last phrase in this verse, he is Lord of all. And, and, and if he's your Lord, then guess what? We're brothers. If he's not your Lord, we got problems, right? There is an issue of division. The real concern of the gospel is you're bringing them a message about peace with God. Just know that going in. Any conversation where I'm going to unpack my understanding of the Bible and Christianity is really about you getting right with your maker. That's what this is about. And it centers on this person through Jesus Christ. Let's unpack verses 37 and 38 real quickly. You yourselves know, Peter says to Cornelius and the, Cornelius and the crowd, he says, what happened throughout all Judea, the southern part of Israel, Beginning from Galilee, the northern part of Israel, after the baptism that John proclaimed. John kept talking about sin. He talked about repentance. You had to identify with that repentant life uh, and, and the coming Messiah that would come after him by being dunked in water. John proclaimed that. You know all about that. Certainly Cornelius had, had known about that. He was very sympathetic and learned of the religious groups within the first century. And he was sympathetic to the Jewish people, gave money, synagogues. I mean, yeah, all of that he knew. God appointed Jesus of Nazareth from way up there in that dusty town in northern Israel with the Holy Spirit. Now, anointing is a weird word, but you know the word anoint means creo in Greek. It means to pour out something on someone. And when he got baptized in the Jordan River, there was that physical manifestation of God's spirit coming down on this person who ended up being the son of God. And as we think about the Trinitarian aspect of the eternal fellowship called this God of the Bible, we understand, even the shorthand in this text, God is with him. Look at this, how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good, healing all who are oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Here is this one affirmed by the father. Shorthand here, God. Christ is presented in a very human way in this passage. He's described as a human. Guess what? Because he is a human. He's also God, right? He's also the fullness of all the deity of heaven in bodily form. He is the one in, who is the exact representation of the nature of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He is all of that. But in this text, we have this picture of the humanity of the Son, the affirmation of the Father, and the empowerment of the Spirit in his life. But it's all focused on Christ He's empowered to break natural law. That's why he's doing all kinds of crazy things like healing people physically. 
and people who are oppressed by the devil, he's showing his authority and power over all things. And we're presenting this one who is the second person of this triune Godhead who has all power, does all things. And this word is not just tossed out there with some relative definition, right? When about doing good? Remember when someone came to Jesus and they said, hey, good teacher? And then he went on, the rich young ruler, and, and Jesus stopped and said, wait, 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 wait. Why do you call me good? Right? Agathos, why do you call me good? Right? No one is good but God alone. See, the idea of good being used in a non-relative sense is that fact that only God is good. He's the holy one. He's the one without sin. And so this is highlighting the fact that you're using this word in a relative sense. You need to think about it in an absolute sense. You need to think about what you're saying. And by the way, he would never recognize Jesus as Lord of his life. Jesus emphasized the fact that I am good. You need to see that in that rhetorical device of saying, no one's good but God alone. Why are you calling me good? And here he was going about doing good. He was good. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, without sin, tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Matter of fact, when the Spirit came upon him at his baptism, one of the first things the Spirit did, first things the Spirit did, is drove him out into the wilderness. Remember that in Matthew 4? To be tempted by the devil. Which is like not Satan going, yeah, I got you now. It was like now you're going to prove the fact that this impeccable nature of the divine Son of God who is perfect and does all things perfectly. Now, I'm going to say this, but don't check out on me. I'm going to say it, and hopefully you're going to write it down. I don't want you to check it. Here it comes. Verses 37 and 38. It is a message about a perfect Savior. A message about, oh, it sounds like a lyrics from a hymnal in my grandpa's church, right? Perfect Savior. Yes, but know why. Wake you up at 2 in the morning tonight, right? I'm going to have someone give me the key. I'm going to go into your house. I'm going to shake you and say this. Why? Why is he a perfect Savior? Why did he need to be a perfect Savior? Why couldn't Moses or Elijah or Isaiah, why couldn't they have been our Redeemer and our Savior? Why him? He's kind of talked about in a human way. Why not another human? Why this divine, perfect, good human? Let's talk about that for a quick sec. Because when you say to people, yeah, Jesus was God, Jesus was divine, Jesus was holy, Jesus was perfect, Jesus was without sin, you got to think about why I'm even telling a non-Christian that. What is the point? There is something very important about you thinking through the life of Christ. He did not get beamed down like some Star Trek episode on Thursday to initiate the ordinance of the Last Supper and then go to the cross on Friday and then rise from the dead on Saturday. And if you've been around, you've heard me say this many times. He was beamed down in the womb of a woman in Nazareth, a young girl named Mary, and was born in a manger and went through every stage, not only of, of, of prenatal development, but, but human development. Luke chapter 2, verse 52, he, he grew in, in, in favor with man and, and God. He grew in stature and intelligence and wisdom. He went through all of this maturation process. All of that was a part of the redemptive plan. We needed a perfect Savior, and we needed a human Savior who was also divine because I needed the perfect human righteousness to be imputed to my life. Now, imputed, there's that theological stuff. Can we not talk? The- no, this is a biblical concept. Matter of fact, here's the Greek word in the New Testament, logizomai, used repeatedly in the New Testament to describe this accounting of someone having something in one account and transferring that and crediting it to another account. And sometimes it's translated that way, to credit. What I needed and what I don't have is human righteousness. Okay, I want you to think of your high school years. How did that, how did that work out morally for you? 
if I want to put your life against Christ's life and how you were acting as a 16-year-old, I just wonder how that would look. He would look good and you would look less than good because you are a sinner and he was not. Right? When he was 13, he didn't pop off at his mother the way that you did. He didn't have a bad attitude. He did what he was told. He did what was right. In the scripture, when it says that children should obey their parents, guess what he did in every instance? You don't want to be his half-brother because it's a hard thing to live under the roof with Jesus. He did it perfectly, perfectly. Why? Why didn't he just show up to be crucified? Because if it's all about his death, why not? Because he needed this, what, what theologians like to call his active obedience. His active obedience. In other words, there's all these acts of obedience as a matter of fact, some don't like that because they don't like to see his death as a passive obedience. So a lot of theologians now call it a preceptive obedience. He kept the precepts, the regulations of humanity that God would expect from human beings. We have a perfect Savior and no prophet or no priest or no you know, guru is going to satisfy what we needed because I needed someone to live my junior high years the proper way. I needed an, an, an adult person to do everything as it ought to be done. When John the Baptist sees Jesus walking on the horizon, and he says, Oh, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was even shocked at that situation because Jesus, when he walks up to him, says, Hey, I'm going to be baptized. Let me get in the queue to be baptized by you. And he goes, Oh, no, not you. I'm not worthy to untie your sandal. Listen, I should be being baptized by you. Why don't you officiate my baptism? And Jesus says, No, no, no. Permit it now at this time to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was getting baptized, not because he was a sinner that needed to show his repentance, but because he was fulfilling every acceptable act and type of obedience that needed to be done in human form so that God could look at Mike Fabares and say, Mike Fabares, I'm going to take all of his righteousness and I'm going to count that, credit that, impute that to you. You ought to be able to explain something about that to a non-Christian. That that's why we have to have God in human form, second person of the Godhead, living among us as a human, being 100% human, also being 100% God, which doesn't seem to add up in our minds, like a lot of things in theology we struggle with, so that that perfect human person would live a perfect human righteous life so that that could all be given to us. I don't care how righteous your priest in the Old Testament was. As Hebrew says, he has to sacrifice for his own sins because he is a sinner. We finally have a perfect high priest who's absolutely without sin, tempted in every way as we are, and that one, now that life can become credited to me. Verse 39. And we are witnesses. Of all he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, we saw all the good stuff he did, all the perfect things he did. And then they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. That's a very interesting way to put this, hanging him on a tree. I thought he got, you know, killed on a cross. Wouldn't it be a good time to say cross now? Because he's a Roman and they, you know, they're doing this crucifixion thing. And certainly Cornelius would be able to identify with that. Um, he uses this phrase for a very important reason. Of course, we're talking about the death of Christ. And you say, well, yeah, I need to tell someone Jesus died for you. Yeah, okay. You need to be able not only to say it, you need to be able to explain it. Explain it. This phrase, hung on a tree, of course, the tree, really literally the word for wood, the idea of a, a piece of wood coming out of the ground, it is a reference. It certainly, it, it, it's the summation of what God said about the curse that goes on someone who is hanging on a tree. This is the most violent kind of thing to hang a human body out there, outside, on a tree in the Old Testament. So this is, the, this is the, the, the personification of the curse of God upon a person. Cursed is the one who's hung up on a tree. So here's a picture, very vibrant picture, hearkening back to Old Testament truths about God's judgment. 
And here it's put in a very poetic way. And again, this isn't all I'm sure that Peter said about it. This is a synopsis of what he said. But we ought to be able to explain what it means that our message, number three, as I put it, what do I call it, verse 39 here on your outline, a message of substitutionary death. Why would a perfect person need to be cursed by God? Right? And this is so out of vogue today in churches. You got skinny jean pastor with his ski cap. You can, your jeans can be as skinny as you want them. But you know what I'm talking about. The cool guys stuff, all the books that have been written about how, you know, we don't believe in this, what theologians call this penal, substitutionary atonement, that God in judgment judges his own son. They call that, like Brian McLaren says, that's cosmic child abuse. And we say, no, no, we're stuck with this because this is what the Bible says. The curse of God upon sinners went on his son instead of us. Because just like his human righteousness needed to be imputed or credited to me if I'm going to be acceptable before God, what happens to all my sin? Because what happens to what I did in high school? What happens to what I did last week? What happens to the bad things I said and shouldn't have thought this morning? They need to be paid for. And just like a judge in Santa Ana in a courtroom is not going to be considered a good judge if he's not a just judge, and if every time we turn around he says, go free, I love you guys, go free, go free, I know you're guilty, it's fine. That is not God, and your neighbors might think that that's God, but someone whose heart is being prepared by conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment, they're going to start to have ears to hear the fact that your sin that you carry as guilt can be put on Christ and be counted as paid in full. That is the substitutionary atonement, the covering of your sin, the expiation of your sin, the removal of your guilt, because God is going to look at Christ as though he were you, and he's going to pour out his justice on him. To quote some scripture, last verse in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin, he was perfect, went around doing good, never did wrong. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. It's as though he was the, the personification of all that was wrong in the universe. All the people of God, all of their guilt and shame right there made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do I get right before my holy creator? The gospel message is, you can say it, Jesus died for you. Well, you better be able to explain it. What does it mean, as Peter puts it in chapter 3, 1 Peter 3, that Christ died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God? That the righteous one, that's what just means, for the unrighteous one, the unjust, that exchange would be so that I could be made right with God. Well, I need his righteousness on me, and I need my sin on him and I need God to somehow, here's the biblical word, propitiation. He needs to propitiate. He needs to get rid of. He needs to satisfy the guilt that there has been a payment that has been made. You can call it whatever you want to call it in your mockery and blasphemy. But that's what you need. Just like if you get arrested and go down, you need someone to pay real money to bail you out. You need some asset. And the asset of our freedom is Christ's death on a cross. So we have a message of a substitutionary death. And unless we put that concept clearly in our minds and we just say, Jesus died for you, well, that can mean all kinds of things to people. Oh, yeah, this is an act of sacrificial love. He died as a martyr. No, he died as a payment. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Here's a verse I quote it often. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4. Leviticus 1, verse 4. When John the Baptist said, here's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the Old Testament pattern of that was bringing a lamb to the worship center, having me... Bring that lamb from my flock, the most innocent, blemishless lamb I could find. No blemishes. Healthy, strong. I could use him, sell him. I could use his wool, all that. I'm bringing him now, and the priest is going to put 
his knife to the, to the animal's throat while I put my hand on him in this picture of like the transfer of my guilt to this animal so that that animal would be barbecued in worship and, and I would then walk away with this picture and sense of in my penitence and recognition of my sin that I'm not going to be punished. That animal will be punished in my place. That's the picture. Of course, the, the blood of bulls and goats can't remove your sin, but there was the Lamb of God that was coming that Isaiah talked about that would remove our sin. So we're preaching a message of being right with God. We're preaching a message of having a perfect Savior who lived our life in our place. And then we're talking about a message of a substitutionary death on a cross, which you hear a lot about. But make sure you can explain it at 2 in the morning, because I might be coming tonight to see if you can explain it. Verse 40. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. That's all the people. He's not going to be here like, where is he? Cornelius said, well, I want to see the resurrected Christ. Remember when Thomas was not there when Jesus showed up after the resurrection and, and he gets chided by Christ, basically. Right? You, you should be able to trust the reliable testimony of your apostolic band here, your brothers. You trust them. You know they're not crazy. And, and, and blessed are those who believe and don't see because he's not going to continually do these magic tricks throughout the centuries to prove to people with their own eyes and ears and all that. You've got to rely on the testimony of the people that have seen him. And it isn't just three guys signing you know, the Book of Mormon in some back room and saying, well, we saw the plates. Right? This is hundreds of people. At one time, hundreds of people. He appeared for 40 days, the Bible says. And 1 Corinthians 15 says at some points he was, he was preaching to a crowd this size, if not larger, saying, hey, listen, I am here, I'm real, and look at how he describes it. Those who've been chosen by God as his witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. You can't eat or drink if you're a phantom or a ghost. These were real teeth, real taste buds, real tongue, real jaw muscles, real esophagus, real intestines. He was there because his body was no longer in the grave. Now, it's a kind of transformed body. We call it a glorified body, but there was no rotting, putrefied body in the grave. And this was something that was supposed to ratify and make clear that what Jesus said on a cross was true. And that is to tell us that, to tell us that, paid in full. It is finished. If Christ on the cross was absorbing all the punishment of sin that I deserve, and I know that in the Bible it says the wages of sin is death, that was the whole arrangement in, in Genesis chapter 3. He, they, they sin, they should die. Well, they die not only relationally, but they're going to die physically. If that death remains after the payment has been paid, then there's a problem. And Jesus says, well, listen, y'all got to finish your life here and the resurrection's coming, but let me pop Christ out of the grave here and we'll see him rise from the dead as a vindication, a verification, and ratification of the fact that all this worked. If the wages in his death, he took away the sin problem, then the resurrection is critically important. What kind of resurrection? A real bodily resurrection of a body that can eat and drink. Verses 40 through 41, we have a message of a ratifying, a ratifying resurrection. Jot that down. A message of a ratifying resurrection. This is the thing that proves that it's real. It's true. It's so important and essential that not only does it, is it given the most airtime throughout the book of Acts, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if it did not happen physically and bodily, then you and I have no hope that our preaching is all in vain. So, of course, Peter's going to say to Cornelius, let's talk about the resurrection. And you know, the Romans weren't known for their great developed theology of the resurrection. I mean, it doesn't matter if this is hard. As a matter of fact, later when there's a discussion in Acts 17 about the resurrection, they start sneering at the Apostle Paul in Athens. Right? This was hard for people to understand, but it's essential. And if I say to you, last time you shared the gospel, did you talk about the resurrection? 
I think most Christians don't even talk about it in their evangelism anymore, let alone explain what it means. And what it means is critically important to our theology. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It declares Christ, this is the apex of verse 4, declares Christ to be the Son of God by the resurrection with power. The point is resurrection from the dead is the vindication that this worked. And the reason you're not following Muhammad or Buddha or whoever else, Confucius, is because we have a Savior that lived in our place, died in our place, and God proved that all that worked by a bodily resurrection from the dead. Do not miss that. We have to preach it. It has to be a part of our evangelism. Speaking of preaching, verse 42. And he commanded us to preach. Here's Peter saying to to Cornelius, Cornelius and the gang. To preach to the people and to testify. Look at this now. That he is the one appointed by God to judge, to be the judge of the living and the dead. Okay, so this one that rose from the dead, and I I assume he talked about it, the ascension and all that here. This is just a summation of it all. But he's now gone away for a while, but when he comes back, he's coming back to judge. Now, here's some euphemistic words, the living and the dead. Those who are right with God. We're alive in Christ, and those that are dead. They're dead in their transgressions and sins, Ephesians 2. That's a euphemistic way to talk about the fact that we've got Christians and non-Christians. And here's some words that, that don't go over very well. Here's one, judge, to judge them. If you tell your neighbor, you're going to be judged by God. If God has not done some pre-conversion work, trust me, that's going to be like the worst thing they can hear. They do not believe it. They don't like it. Where's your message of love? I thought you Christians were loving. They don't want to hear that. Or were you a turn and burn Christian? What kind of Christian are you? You don't believe in hell. Really? Really? You think my grandma's in hell? Really? You believe that? They're gonna, you're going to get all that. Unless you've got someone who God's been working on. Under the conviction of God's spirit, they're feeling the guilt. They're feeling the fact that they fall short. They're sensing, right? Convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment that they deserve God's judgment. Then you start talking about judging. God is going to come and judge. He's going to judge the living and the dead. He is going to judge his creation, but you can be ready for that because we have a message that will get you right with God. It's a message based on a perfect Savior who lived in your place. It's a message of a substitutionary death on the tree where the curse of God was focused. And he rose from the dead to prove that it all worked. Now, you just know this. You need to get ready for the judgment of God by getting right with this Messiah. And you've got to know this is like important because when you die, you're out of opportunities. This is, let me put it this way, just to kind of step back and glean from this one statement in verse 42. We need to have a message of urgent necessity. Jot it down that way. Urgent necessity. When you share the gospel, and many people have made the mistake of just thinking, well, just think about it, consider it. Why don't you give it a week, kind of mull it over? You'll feel like, like, like a door-to-door vacuum salesman. I get it. It feels weird to take the Bible seriously and do what the Bible does and shows us by, by way of example and by precept, that you ought to be urgent in this message. Think about Paul when he talked to the Corinthians, talked about the day of salvation. He quotes the Old Testament in Isaiah, and then he says, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. In Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, he repeats it a couple times. He says, today, if you'd hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, today, today. When you're having a conversation with someone, it may be the last opportunity you have to talk to them about Christianity. I'm assuming that God's done some pre-conversion work in their life. Now, you've got to give them the message. You better be prepared to talk about a message that makes peace with God, a message about a perfect Savior, a message about a substitutionary death, a message about a vindicating resurrection, and you ought to bring that message with that kind of urgency. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the second chance. Do you know that verse? Just write it down if you don't know the verse. Is that what it says? It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. That's it. Time for you to be judged. The living and the dead, 
You want to talk about how unpopular these words are. I bet most of you, if you were in some other church, you probably even in a good evangelical church haven't heard many sermons about the judgment of the living. But you, you do understand there's a judgment of both categories. A judgment of one we always think about in evangelism is the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment in the end of the book of Revelation, when non-Christians are going to be called before their creator, he's going to open the books and the books are going to include their deeds and he's going to judge them according to what they've done in those books. And that's all about God assigning them the just punishment for their deeds. There's another judgment talked about a lot in scripture, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, Romans chapter 14, that the servants of God that are Christians are going to be called before their maker and they're going to be evaluated. It's going to be this evaluation. It's going to feel like fire taken to my Christian life. And God's saying, let's look at the things that were wood, hand, straw. Let's look at the things that were gold, silver, precious stones. Let's evaluate your life here and see how you did. Every servant has got to give an account to their master. That may not be something we like to hear. Well, I thought the Bible said don't judge. Unless you judge. God's not a God who would ever judge me. Okay, you got someone who's not being prepared by pre-conversion work. But you got someone there that's dealing with the grappling with the issues of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Like Cornelius, he was ready, eager to hear. I want to hear the whole message. And you give them the message that this is a message of a substitutionary life, a substitutionary death, a message that could get you right with God, a message that's been vindicated by the resurrection. There needs to be a leaning forward to say, today, let's not leave this conversation until today you respond rightly to this message. An urgency. Because life or death, heaven and hell, the judgment of the living and the dead, I, I, I'm not going to enjoy the beam of seat judgment. I may suffer loss for the things that I look at in my Christian life and say, I wish I hadn't done that, but there's no condemnation for me. Thankfully, it's not the great white throne judgment. Either way, I know this is important. Even as an evangelist, I want to make sure I do this right, and part of it is being ready to share this message. Verse 43, at least the first half of verse 43, 43a, to him, Christ, this judge of the living and the dead, all the prophets bear witness. Let's just stop there. So what is he referring to? The prophets. Old Testament? Yep. Bear witness. They have written about him. The Bible has this authenticating proof called predictive prophecy. Were you reading the DBR this week? Yesterday's reading in the middle of Isaiah? We're three-fourths of the way through Isaiah. Even this morning's reading, if you haven't read it yet, read it before you go to bed. It's on our website. The schedule's on our worksheet. You really need to go back and read yesterday's because it's all part of one argument about the fact that the idols are nothing. If you're trusting in idols, it's ridiculous. Any other God but the real God. The idols can't do anything. And he gave this funny illustration today about the fact you get a tree, they, they carve an idol, and they pray to it and bow down to it, and then they take the other part of the wood and they, they warm themselves and burn it in the fire. You guys are ridiculous. Matter of fact, this is in yesterday's reading. He says anyone who trusts in these idols is an abomination. And the thing that he punctuates this with is, Look at me. I'm the real God. There's no other God but me, and here's how he proves it. He says, because not only can I tell you what has been, because I'm the God who is, I'm God who was, and I'm the God who is to come. He says, but I can tell you what is to come. Like Amos says, God reveals his secrets to his prophets, and his prophets tell us what God says is coming. And God has done that. Even in the book of Isaiah, which is tomorrow's reading, I think it mentioned it in the end of the verse today, it brings up Cyrus's name. One of the reasons people do not, the liberals do not believe that Isaiah could possibly be one author at the time historically it was said to be written is because it mentions Cyrus, the, the, the Assyrian king. Well, this is during the Babylonian period. Well, how could he even know his name? Well, in the next verse, it's going to start tomorrow's reading about the fact that he has been chosen by God to do something significant in God's plan. God is sovereign. And God is telling a prophet what's going to happen. 
That's why people haven't believed, right, that Isaiah could possibly be written by Isaiah as one. You got Deutero, Isaiah, and all the rest of this. All that nonsense is because we don't believe that God is the author of this book. If you believe that God is the author of this book, not only are you impressed with, you know, a prophecy that takes decades to come true, but how about the prophecies in Isaiah itself that speak of the coming Christ? How he would live, how he would die, that he would rise again. All that's coming in the end of the book of Isaiah. It's already talked about his birth in the beginning of the book of Isaiah. And God is trying to say, look, this is a message. Let's jot it down this way. Verse 43, A, it's a message with a prophetic proof. It's, it's a message with prophetic proof. The proof is that you've got a document that the Koran can't match, the writings of Confucius can't match, the Pali canon can't match. There's no religious system that's got a book that's got predictive prophecies like ours has. And it has in that the authenticating fingerprints of a God who knows the future, right? It, the, the, the humor of God is doing things like the very first scroll that John Trevor in Jerusalem took a picture of. God gets an American with a 35 millimeter camera doing his dissertation on the flora and fauna of Palestine and happens to be there when the scrolls finally come from St. Mark's Monastery that are now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they bring them. He gets his camera out, and the first one they roll out in front of him, where it's at that time, and, and, and think about it, modern critical scholarship had said, there's no way this is one piece that was put together, right, prior to the life of Christ. This was all redacted, several authors. The very first one that John Trevor takes pictures of is the entire Isaiah scroll with all 66 chapters of Isaiah, Right? And he starts snapping pictures. And God is kind of, I mean, I can see God just rolling his eyes. Like, you guys are so dumb, right? You, 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 you sit there and mock the fact that I can tell the future. And the whole book of Isaiah is about that, right? We read it yesterday. We read it today. God is a God who's saying, I can tell the future. Find it, this is not a book like Nostradamus' writings that are just full of these cryptic comments that could fit who knows what things that have happened, right? No, they're very specific down to the name of the Assyrian king. This is the kind of thing we see in Scripture. And we ought to stand back and say, I'm not just giving you something. You've got to trust the witnesses that saw Christ resurrected, although you need to trust that. But you need to look at the fact that this whole book is a prophetic book that God has written. Like Schaefer said, there is a God and he has spoken. And this book is his propositional revelation to man. And that's why we're preaching this with authority. Not only because you're going to die and you're going to face judgment, but I know what kind of judgment you're going to face and I know the person you're going to face at the judgment, Jesus Christ, because the book has God's fingerprints all over it and no other person can write a book like that. This is a God book. And if I didn't put it on the back, you know, there's many books that represent this category of books, but maybe Barton Payne's book, Barton Payne. I don't think I put it on there. I didn't have space for a bunch of books uh, other than what I had room for. Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy. There's a good book, big fat book, six, seven hundred pages. Start looking at books that talk about the fact that the Bible is filled with predictive prophecies. 43b. To him, all the prophets have bear witness. And one of the clear things this is all about, this whole message is all about, we've come full circle. You want an inclusio? Here it is. We started with a message that brings peace, peace with what? With God. Well, we've got a sin problem, we've got to be taken care of. To everyone who believes in him, in Christ, receives forgiveness of sins through his name, through his life, through his authority, through his ministry, through his work, through his redemption. That life takes Mike Fabares' sins, to quote Psalm 103, and removes them far from me as far as the east is from the west. That picture of forgiveness is the whole point. It's the whole point for us if we have any hope. So 43b, put it down this way, it's a message of full forgiveness, full forgiveness. And speaking of the DBR, right, and you're missing out if you're not reading our DBR every day, daily Bible reading. 
Yesterday's reading, so good. You got to linger on passages like this. When it says in Colossians chapter one, our New Testament reading said this, that we have, been, we have giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us, that's such a good word, qualified us to share in the inheritance in the saints in light. Right? He have redeemed us. He's forgiven us of all of our sins and our trespasses. God who has made us qualified. This is not a works-based religion that says, you know, work at it hard, and when you get to the end, you'll still have to go through this, you know, kind of spiritual car wash for a few thousand years, maybe a million years, called purgatory, and maybe you'll get out of it clean and catch up with the rest of us. This is God's complete forgiveness. At the moment of your, of your forgiveness, when Jesus had the man die next to him on the cross, the criminal, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today, today, today. God wants to give full forgiveness to the person that you're talking to. Cornelius was about to get full forgiveness. So let's talk about the message of full forgiveness. That's, that's the point. What a beautiful passage, by the way. I was quote, quoting Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Okay, it gets interrupted. Verse 44, are you with me still? While Peter was saying these things. So he's not even done with the message yet. The Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. Heard, of course, with ears to hear. They had to respond, right? Or it wouldn't match the rest of Scripture. You've got to respond to this. And they responded. In their hearts, they were responding. Which, by the way, by the time I get to real conversion with someone in an evangelistic conversation, by the time we bow our heads to even say anything to God, technically, if you want to get technical, they're, they're saved. They've already confessed in their conscience, in their heart, I need God, I'm a sinner, I trust in Christ. You're right, God's truth is validated and it's real, and I need to trust Him. That's, that's happening. By the time they start praying some prayer that comes out of their mouth, or appealing to God, they, they, their hearts have been changed. A lot of pre-conversion grace, but then the saving, the efficacious saving grace, it kicks in, and God there saves them, and that's what happens. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So God here, let's just take this one at a time. Uh, what, let's call it this. It, they're going to change them. Matter of fact, let's read the whole thing, because I know we usually read the whole passage ahead of time, but let's just read this paragraph. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that's code for the Jews that came with Peter, right, who had come with Peter, they were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Well, how did they know that? Well, here's how. Because there was this miraculous evidence of it, just like they had in Pentecost. This is the second time we have this thing called tongues or languages. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. That means they were different languages than what they spoke. They probably spoke a little Aramaic, just like a lot of people here speak a little bit of Spanish. They spoke, you know, the Latin of, of the first century. But here they're speaking in languages they had not learned, and they're praising God. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they said, which of course you would say, hey, hey can you stay for a while? He asked him, Peter, to remain for a few days, sleep on the couch take my bed, right, whatever, you stay. Okay, verse 44. While Peter was still, uh, here's the thing, changes. Give us a, a, a heading. Expect God's post-conversion changes, okay? There's changes in these Gentiles' lives, and the first change, to get a sub-point here, is now they have the Holy Spirit, look at the words, verse 44, fell on them. Verse 45, the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, Look at verse 47, receive the Holy Spirit. So this is about your relationship with the third person of the Godhead. Now, Jesus is still enthroned at the right hand of the Father. God is still the God dwelling in unapproachable light. But the contact with humanity, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead, now you have a full connection with him. He's been poured out on you. You've received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now has taken you, to use some biblical words, and he has sealed you in this new relationship with God. 
And what comes with that? A ton of things. We can study that. We have studied that. It's all there recorded. The idea of what it means to have the Holy Spirit in our life, that, that changes everything about my relationship with God. It changes my heart. Ezekiel 33, the idea of my heart being turned from stone to flesh. I'm now alive to God. All this miraculous stuff takes place in the interior of my life, the accepted, adopted status of my life because the Spirit of God now is like, bam. Not just working on me, not just working me you know, into this conversation, the Spirit with me, but the Spirit now is in me. That change in preposition to talk about the profundity of the acceptance of God and me and God are made right. Verse 44. The changes you should expect, number one, are a new relationship with God, a new relationship with God, which is kind of a broad way to put it. But when someone comes to Christ after your conversation with them and you explain the gospel to them, if there is genuine repentance and faith, if there's a real reckoning with their sin and trusting in Christ, the relationship with God is never going to be the same. Just like when you became a Christian, I bet Bible reading became very different. Oh, you were getting things and learning things, but now all of a sudden it's like bread and, 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 and nourishment to your life. It's like babies longing for the pure milk of the word, to use Peter's phrase. The idea of us feeding on the word, as Hebrews 5 says, it's the, the meat of my life. I mean, nourishment comes from that book, my prayer life now. Not just kind of throwing out prayers and hoping for the best. It's like God now, it's like his spirit testifying to my spirit. And there's that sense of even groaning and longing to be with God. The spirit of God now is working in my, I have a new relationship with God. I, I, I sense that. Everything changes. Verse 45. And all the believers among the circumcised, the Jews, had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of God had been poured out even on the Romans, the Gentiles. These are the guys that went to boot camp with people that strapped Christ up to the cross. And that's huge. You mean they're fully a part of us? Yes. I said Christ did not come to bring peace on earth. Well, he didn't come to bring peace on earth because anyone who sees Christ as Lord, there's going to be oil and water with the rest of the world. But here's what's going to happen. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, Scythian, free, barbarian, slave. You are going to be brought together in this family. I'm going to spend, I don't know how many weeks in the next series, in chapters 11 and 12, looking at the fact that this unifies people from all different backgrounds. And it ought to unify our church. So let me put it this way. What's the the thing that's going to happen? Well, let 45, a new relationship with the church. These people are fully included. We talked about it throughout the series, the inclusion of the Gentiles. They are just as much the people of God and of the household of God as the Jews are who are trusting in Christ. The Jewish Messiah has become the Messiah of the Gentiles. And that means we are one, one spirit, one body, one baptism. They're in this thing together, in this harmony. They're maintaining now this unity of the faith. A lot more on that in the next series. Verses 46 through 48. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. If you need more on that, I got sermons on the back where we dealt with that in chapter 2, a whole series from 1 Corinthians 14 for the artificial, strange perversion of that uh, gift in, in Corinth and in modern Pentecostalism. The idea of God having these people, right, being able to miraculously demonstrate to others who needed to have that verified that they are right with God. We didn't need time to see if hey, they really saved. Bam. Miraculous sign that they were saved. They were really Christians. And so they had that. It was clear. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they said, no, nah, I don't know. Maybe, I, I'm not sure. Maybe later. I'm, I'm scared. Do I have to do it in front of everybody? I'm really not dressed for baptism. No. You, I mean, not even stated here because of course we know. And they wanted to be with them. Right? That's the new relationship with the church. But Of course they were obedient. It's a new kind of obedience. Let's put it that way. Verses 46 through 48. 
what's the changes you're going to see? A different kind of obedience. There's a lot of obedience that takes place because of guilt, because of shame, because of conformity to the society or the community or the church, or I don't want to get caught. But now as Christians, that new heart then starts to beat in sync with the Spirit's desires, and I start now wanting to do what the Spirit wants me to do. And now all of a sudden, there's this new sense of obedience. It's a new pattern of obedience. It's an obedience, I often say, from the inside out. I don't need to get into my testimony, but I think about the pre-conversion work God did in my life. I become a Christian, right? Which, by the way, this is the weekend of my spiritual birthday, uh, many decades ago. And as I became a Christian, everything about the obedience in my life, it was a whole different kind of experience from the inside out. And the Bible promised that if I was a real Christian, I would persevere in that, and God's Spirit would not leave me. I would never be cast out, and God would have me, develop me, continue to sanctify me increasingly for the rest of, of my life. And just like these guys, it's implied it'll be explained in the next chapter and even on into chapter 15, they were willing to obey the command that God had given them, in this case, to be identified with the body of Christ, to be baptized in water, things that seemingly were unthinkable before. The Roman soldiers getting baptized? Crazy. And here they are saying, I want to be a part of this thing. I'm in it. I'm in it, and I'm going to identify with it. I did miss being here last week. had a great time on this conference trip, but... Coming back to you guys, I know you, and I know if I don't tell you the rest of the story about the Ritz-Carlton, you're going to be mad at me. So my folder is, is blank, and I lean over to my handler, and I say, I mean, I had to make a decision right there. I said, I'll be right back. So I got up from the front row. I walked down the aisle. I walked like I wasn't in a hurry. I was in a hurry. When I got to the doorway, this is Ritz Carl, I mean, famous people and suits and ties, and I had my white shirt and all that, and I get to the back, and as soon as I got out of view of that crowd, you want to see Pastor Mike run fast in a suit? I ran as fast as I could run. Down the hallway, from the ballrooms, down, you know, to the lobby, the lobby down, out to the front of the valet, and then I spoke to the valet with emphasis that I needed my car and I needed it now. There may be people waiting, but I need it now. I need it now. There's a room full of VIPs that need to hear a sermon that's on a bunch of papers in my car. I need, I need my car now. As a matter of fact, why don't you just run to wherever my car is, and I'll run right behind you. <laughs> and so he fumbles to find the keys, and he starts running, which I appreciated. And I was running right behind him <laughs> to the underground bunker, right? My tie's flying over my shoulder. And sure enough, get to the car. He pushes the button, the door opens, and there's my briefcase. And sure enough, I had printed out my notes, and they were in my briefcase, and I had taken my nice little leather note folder, thinking that's really cool, because I need that if I'm going to the Ritz-Carlton, but I didn't ever take them out of the briefcase and put it in there. So I took the notes out, grabbed them, threw them in the folder, said to the guy, do whatever you want with the car, I'll tip you later, and I said, I'm running back. And so I run back from the underground bunker where the parking is. The valet parks the car. I run through the lobby like a crazy man. I run all the way down the hallways. I get to the ballroom. And just as I'm walking in the back, they're announcing me on the platform, introducing me. And then I walk in really slow, <laughs> like, like I meant to do it. Now, you've been to the South where, like, these, these big-time guys in their suits, they're a little hefty, drink a lot of sweet tea down there, and... Uh, Sometimes the preachers bring up a little hanky when they're preaching and tap their forehead. Man, I needed one of those. 
I, I mean, I'll sweat by the third point usually in a sermon, but man, I was sweating right, at, I mean, just dead sprint back into the room. Moral of the story, if you ain't prepped, you better run and get prepped. And I say that because in the book of Hebrews, here were these people, and he said, by this time, speaking of Hebrews 5, you ought to be teachers by now. Act of obedience, substitutionary atonement, right? resurrection of Christ, ratifying the, the gospel message, right? the judgment, living dead, be seat, great way. You ought to be teaching that stuff. Right? And if you're not, then there's a problem. It's translated sluggish, this Greek word nothros. You, you, ought to be, uh, you ought to get with it, man. You ought to start running. And it's not like if you have opportunity. It's like by this time, two words for time in Greek, chronos and kairos. This is the word chronos. You've had enough days here to get this. Now, if you're a brand new Christian, brand new, like you became a Christian last week, right? Okay, you want to share your testimony and your evangelism? That's fine. But once you have been around the block a couple times, you ought to by now being able to, if I woke you up at 2 in the morning and said, I got a non-Christian here who needs to know why in the world Jesus was a perfect person. Right? It's time for us to dig deeper. That's why I give you books on the back every week. We got to study this. It isn't about you being up on the starlets in Beverly Hills or the, or the sports scores in, in, in Sports Illustrated. What, what more important, you want to know those things, make sure you know this first. Make sure you're spending more time in this. Know the rich and glorious gospel that we have to share with non-Christians, okay? Why don't you stand with me and I'll dismiss you here with a word of prayer. We've got a lost world out there. I know not every waitress or Uber driver or neighbor that you pass over by the mailbox, I mean, you're not going to break out into a gospel conversation with every one of those, but there's some that God is preparing, and I want you to think and look and detect it and then get ready with the message of God's gospel. Let's pray. God, prepare us, please. In this sermon, not so much about just the courage to speak up for you, it's really about the uh, equipping and preparation, making sure that we're, we're... really boned up on the, on the notes and the truth of all this, that we know when it's our cue to be on and we're ready. We've done everything to stand firm in that, that, that tumultuous, fear-inducing, monumental Christian A talks to non-Christian B. And for us, as you brought us to church this morning to think through these gospel components and issues, I pray that we would be more prepared today, as I hoped at the beginning of this sermon, to leave this parking lot more prepared than when we drove in. So get us ready. Let us dig deep. Let us imbibe on the riches of the gospel. It's such a good message, and it's so important. And I pray you give us opportunity as we see those uh, white harvest fields that are ready for harvest. Let us get get in the game here this week. God, dismiss this church now with a sense of your presence and joy. Let them linger in fellowship on the patio. I just pray it would be a good day for us to uh, rejoice in the good things that you've done and made, but most importantly, that we would hold tightly to the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.